Son and Holy Spirit, honor, glory, and praise for what you accomplish in our lives tonight. Amen. People everywhere love a good story, and there are plenty of good stories available to read. Some of them have attained classic status. For example, most of us probably know some of the more well-known stories written by Shakespeare. I remember watching television one night with our daughter, watching a debate from BBC on who Shakespeare really was. Was he Shakespeare? Was he Christopher Marlowe? Was he someone else? I think he was William Shakespeare, a great writer. We know Macbeth. We know his writing. We know Hamlet and all of his sonnets and all of his plays that he wrote. They're classic. Good stories. We might even know someone by the name of Ernest Hemingway, an American writer, who certainly wrote some classics. One of his classics was The Old Man and the Sea. When I first heard about that story, I expected a great big volume, and it's a little tiny thing. I bet it isn't more than 100 pages long, maybe less. But a classic. There are some Christian writers who have attained classic status as well for their stories. Many of us know the Narnia series. We used to read it to our kids when they grew up because it was a nice, convenient way to present some of the truths of the gospel. But just in case you're wondering, there were spots along the way we had to cross and go, oh, now see this isn't quite right here because it didn't jive with Scripture. But it did give us an opportunity to show them that which is false and clarify and reveal to them what was true. But nonetheless, most of you probably know the Narnia story. Another one that you might know because it became famous rather recently because of videos and DVDs and that J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. These are classic stories. Many of you have watched them on videos, you've read them, but they pale in contrast to the stories we read in the Bible. How can you touch the story of Job? Even classical critics acclaim the book of Job as perhaps the greatest short story ever written. A classic story. How about the story of Abraham? We'll look a little more at him tonight. Or David. Or Paul. Esther. She really captivates me. The courage of a young woman standing before a king who could take her life, having gone in with a promise, if I perish, I perish. Classic stories from Scripture. But even these stories pale in comparison to the greatest story ever told. One writer called it the purple puzzle tree. 
The Purple Puzzle Tree is a series of stories taken from Scripture that combine together into a series that covers God's plan of redemption and restoration from Genesis to Revelation. And each of the stories that it uses as part of its series is a puzzle piece. And at the end of the series, if you have gone through all of the various puzzle pieces, you have come to see the purple puzzle tree. The story of God's plan of redemption and restoration that he started in the garden and brings the consummation at the end of the ages. I want us to look at one of the puzzle pieces that we find in Scripture that helps us to get a bit of a grasp on this overarching theme of all of Scripture, his plan of redemption and restoration. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 19. If you have scriptures with you, I invite you to turn. We will read it. If you don't and you want to use the white Bible, I believe they're all white, from the chair in front of you, you'll find it on page number 67. We'll read a couple of verses from this chapter and then we will see how they fit into God's plan of redemption. Exodus 19, beginning in verse number 1, we read, In the third month, after the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the wilderness of Sinai, they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and Yahweh called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thou, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be mine own possession above all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called to the elders of the people and set before them all the words which Yahweh commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh hath spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people unto Yahweh. It starts right out. God wanted to remind his children, the children of Israel, that he had redeemed them from Egypt. It starts right out by saying, remind them how I brought them out and bore them on eagle's wings. Perhaps you read somewhere or know the story of how 
eagles care for their little eaglets. They spend many months in the nest, and finally the mother kicks them out, and they begin to try to fly, and the mother eagle comes down underneath the young one, carries them on her wing. That's the picture. I bore you on eagle's wings, she said. I brought you out. He redeemed them from the bondage and slavery of Egypt. God had prophesied to Abraham that they would go to a strange land and they would live there 400 years in bondage and then he would bring them out. We read also in Exodus chapter 6 where God spoke to Moses and he said, I want you to go tell the people that I will redeem them. I will bring them out with an outstretched arm. And in fact, he even went on to say, they will drive you out. That certainly sounded impossible to the children of Israel, whom the Pharaoh had pressed down sorely and oppression and bondage upon them. And God said, they will drive you out. And we read about that very fact coming to pass. How God brought them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. And they, in fact, did drive them out, if you remember the story. God not only redeemed them from the bondage of slavery, but he also redeemed them from the bondage of sin. We so often focus in the story of the children of Israel in Egypt and concentrate upon their bondage in slavery and forget their bondage in sin. Those 400 years that they lived down in Egypt, there's no mention of God. His presence didn't come. He didn't reveal himself to them. There's no record of their calling upon him. Silence. In fact, they had become idol worshippers just like the nation about them. They worshipped the same gods and idols that the Egyptians worshipped. And we know that because when God brought them out of Egypt towards the promised land, what did they carry with them? Some of those same idols. And they carried them with them through all those years. Talk about the mercy of God. They had become idol worshippers. And God not only redeemed them from the slavery, but he redeemed them from the bondage of sin. And it began with that well-known, we call it a ceremony, I guess, but it actually was a sacrifice. It's called the sacrifice of Passover. And how God instructed Moses to instruct the people to take a lamb or a kid, depending on their wealth. And if a neighbor next to them was perhaps small or maybe didn't have 
access to a lamb or a kid. They would combine households, but every household would have a lamb. And they would sacrifice that lamb, and they would take the blood, and they would put it on the doorway. And God promised them that when the death angel would pass over the land, he would look for the blood on the door. And if he saw the blood on the door, God said, I will pass over. Now, typically we think of the passing over kind of like a bouncing bunny. And that when God would see the blood, he'd bounce over the house. Well, that's not the exact picture. What it literally describes is when a death angel would pass over and God would see the blood on the door, he would come in between the death angel and the house with the blood. He would pass over, thus protecting those within the household with the blood from the destruction of the death angel. Do you see the picture? What a beautiful picture. You can't miss. Well, I suppose you can. But how can you miss? The picture of the Passover lamb. Paul called him Jesus Christ, our Passover. The substitutionary death of the lamb and the blood spilt on behalf of those within the household. And on that very night, God redeemed them out of Egypt. Jesus Christ, our Passover. The atoning blood of Jesus has redeemed us. Well, let me rephrase that. He's redeemed me. Has he redeemed you? Please forgive me. But just because you're here tonight does not at all convince me that you have been redeemed. Not that you have to please me. No, you don't. But I have a responsibility. And the responsibility is to declare unto you that if you have never been redeemed, that you must repent and believe. Maybe tonight would be the night that you would repent and believe. Those children of Israel, they didn't fully understand what God was doing and what he had designed and that Passover sacrifice and what he was going to do for them. They didn't fully understand all of that. But to the extent that they understood and had knowledge, they believed and they trusted and they slashed the blood on the door and they stayed inside according to the instructions so that God would protect and preserve them. Have you found protection under the wings of the eagle? And have you found refuge in the blood of the Passover sacrifice? Jesus. We notice as part of this that not only did God redeem them from slavery and from sin, he also reconciled them. Did you see that? He said, I will bring you unto myself. 
Usually when we talk about reconciliation, it's a two-way street. You know, everybody's got to give a little, you give a little, and I'll give a little, and we'll kind of meet halfway, and we'll reconcile and be joined together. That is not the reconciliation that God provides. We don't cozy up to God. We don't somehow give a little and share a little and God gives a little and shares a little and we somehow meet halfway. No, no. That's not God's reconciliation. God's reconciliation is where he takes you and me, sinful creatures that we are, God-haters at heart, rebellious, rejecting of his authority in our lives, and he, through the blood of Jesus, draws us to himself. That's his reconciliation. And that's what he did for the children of Israel. He said, I will draw them unto myself. So God redeemed the children of Israel. And what a picture of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Available to sinners like you and like me. Now the story goes on. Not only did he redeem them and reconcile them to himself, he says, now therefore if you will obey me. God required of them obedience. And I want you to notice the order. Chapter 19, and its description that we've just read, comes after Exodus chapter 6. And it comes after Exodus chapter 12 and before Exodus 20. I don't mention that to give you a lesson in mathematics. I bring that out to point out to you that God has an order. And the order is believe and obey not obey and believe. Faith comes before obedience. There are many people who stress that in the Old Testament, those saints were saved by obeying the law. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. That's not how it's described. That's not the pattern that is given in Scripture. The gospel in the Old Testament is the same as the gospel in the New Testament. We are saved by grace through faith. It is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. There is no change. But God pointed out to the children of Israel that because I have done so much for you, I want you to obey me. What was God after? The heart. The heart. And if you read the law, which begins in chapter 20, as God began to lay out the commandments to Moses to give to the, the children of Israel, as he began to lay out the law, you will see very clearly that it is based on love. And just in case the people missed it, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is kind of Moses' last hurrah, if you will, he began to review to the children of Israel 
all that had transpired and all that God had done and the law that he had given to them in preparation of their going into the promised land because he knew he would not get there, that he wanted to take his position of authority and responsibility to remind them of all that God had done and what God required of them. And guess what he told them? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God of all your heart, all your soul, your mind, and your strength. Oh, and by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. Doesn't that sound familiar? The lawyer who came to Jesus, on what does the law stand? Well, there's two stones on which it stands. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The gospel is the same. Why do we obey God's law? Why did he command us to obey him and to live a righteous, holy life? Because of what he did for the children of Israel. What has he done for you? Has he saved you? And you would say, oh yes, he has saved me. Oh, I've got you now. Now I've got you. Oh, he saved you, did he? And how are you then responding to what he has done for you in his great grace? He saved you and redeemed you from your sinfulness, your wickedness, your rebellion, your rejection of him, the fact that at heart you are a God-hater. We don't like to think of ourselves that way, do we? But that's who we are. At heart, we are enemies of God. We don't love him, we don't pursue him, we don't want him. But he saved us by grace. He bought us and drew us to himself and reconciled us to him. So then, now therefore, obey me, he said. And a call comes to you and it comes to me as well. Now therefore, since I have made you new through my blood shed for you, now that you belong to me, obey me. Hasn't changed. Requirement is still the same. The story goes on. Not only did he redeem us, not only does he require that we obey the law, but he says to us, Oh, and this is really strange. He says to us, if you will obey me, to the children of Israel through Moses, if you will obey me, I will regard you above all peoples of all the earth. Well, I thought everybody was the same. Doesn't sound like it. God promised those children of Israel, those people, he said, if you will obey me, I will elevate you to a status that, that surpasses everyone in all the earth, because, by the way, the earth is mine, and I can do as I want to do. And if you will obey me, I will regard you above every other nation. 
and every other nation will come to you, and you will be a blessing to them. The sovereignty of God in election. Why Abraham? Do you ever think about that? Why Abraham? Why not one of his brothers? He had two brothers. Why not one of his brothers? Or how about one of his cousins? Maybe one of his uncles? Why Abraham? You do recall and know that Abraham was an idol worshiper and came from a family of idol worshippers and a nation of idol worshippers, a nation that had built the Tower of Babel in rebellion and rejection against God's law specifically. God said to go out and replenish all the earth, and they said, we don't want to do that, we will not do that, we will build a city and a tower. Absolutely denying and rejecting the authority of God in their life. That's where Abraham came from. So why did God choose Abraham? Because Abraham was good? No. Did he choose Abraham because he came from a large nation? No. Well, maybe it was because Abraham was smart, well-educated, highly trained, had a lot to offer. No. The scriptures, in fact, tell us very clearly that there was nothing inherent in Abraham that caused God to call him. There was only one reason why God called him. That says he loved him. He loved him. And my friend, that's the same reason why God calls you. Not because there's anything inherent in you that would commend you unto God. Nothing. We all are dead in our trespasses and our sins. The only thing, the only reason why God would call me sinners, selfish, greedy, proud, conniver. Jacob's got muscle on me, my friend. I can connive with the best of them. He loved me. And my friend, if you have come to faith in Christ, it's because he loves you. Now, therefore, how are you going to respond to that? the king of all the ages, of all eternity, who holds your very breath in his hands, who holds the stars in suspension, and he loves you. And he proved his love to you. How can you live to yourself? How can you? You can't. You see, God wants us to realize that He loves us. 
loves people like you and like me. Oh, what love. 10,000 words are not enough. They're not. Some days I wake up and I realize God's love for me and I just lay there on the floor and weep. How can he love me? Doesn't he know who I am? (laughs) Oh yeah, he knows who I am. You bet he knows who I am. And he loves me. Talk about a life changer. That's a life changer. And then it says, as it goes on, that he, he brought them out. He did it. Wasn't anything that, he, that Israel did. All they did is obey and, and believe in it. And God brought them out. God parted the sea. God provided for them in their initial stages in, in the wilderness journeys prior to 19. There's obviously more that occurs, but prior to here, the, the trees and the bitter water, the food, the quail, the manna, the water. He did it. And my friend, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, there wasn't anything you did either. It's all grace. It's all what he has done. It's all his sovereign work in your life. Opening your eyes to see. Opening your ears to hear. Enabling your mind to understand things that you could not previously see. Giving to you a heart to believe and to obey. Spurgeon aptly titled his little book on salvation, All of Grace. Because it is all of grace. The story goes on. Not only has he redeemed us, not only has he required of us that we obey him, Not only did he say that he would regard the children of Israel above all other nations. Before I go to the next one, I just remember what I wanted to add. You'll forgive me, won't you? I've got a couple minutes. Bear with me. Are we not special people? Those of us who have come to faith in Christ, how are we described in the Scriptures? As many as believe to them, he gave the authority to become... Sons of God. Oh. Then we read in Romans 8, we read there about adoption. Receiving the adoption of sons. And we read in John 3 where Jesus talked with Nicodemus and he told them the story of the, of the, the serpent on the, on the pole. And he said, just like that was lifted up even so must the Son of Man be lifted up because God so loved the world he gave his Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but shall have everlasting life. Oh, we are a special people. Yeah, we are. A special people above all people. Only believers can claim that. Only the children of the king can claim those definitions and descriptions. And not because of anything in us, but because of what God has done for us through Christ. 
The scriptures tell us that God was in Christ reconciling sinners like you and me unto himself. Now we'll go to the fourth one. The fourth one is stated in this fashion. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be mine own possession from among all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If the children of Israel would obey, they would recount and reflect the nature of God. Just a real quick history lesson. I know you know it, but I'll try to make it quick. What plan did God have for mankind when he created Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden? If you go back and read Genesis 1, 2 and the first part of 3, what were they to become? Royal priests. They were to go throughout all the earth. He said, fill the earth. Go out through all the earth to do it and tell them about me. God's plan hasn't changed. God didn't have one plan for the Garden of Eden, one for the children of Israel, and one for us, the church. Mm, One plan. Never changed his plan. He might change the way in which he brings about his plan, but his plan has never changed. The children of Israel were to become royal priests. They were to go throughout all of the earth. That was part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, if you will recall. They were to be a blessing to all nations. And all the nations of the earth would be blessed in them. How was that to come to pass? They didn't know then. Now God is beginning to reveal how that's going to come to pass by expanding the explanation and revealing in a more progressive fashion the intent of that covenant that he made back in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. How was this to come to pass? They would become a kingdom of priests. And they would go throughout all the earth and they would recount God. And they would explain to the people God and his law and his demands upon them and his call upon them. In addition to that, they would reflect God's nature. They would be a holy nation. Not just a nation... Not just a nation superior to everyone else, but superior because of their role and responsibility, but also because of their character. Holy. One of my greatest burdens is for the Church of Jesus Christ that it would once again become holy. My friends, let's be honest. We're not. We're not. We're just like I recall growing up in my youth, the great thing with all of the youth speakers and the questions always that would come to all of the youth seminars and everything. Can I do this and still be a Christian? Can I do this and still be a Christian? How about this? Can I do this and still be a Christian? Oh, you know those, don't you? I'm not 
bringing a surprise upon you. You know those questions. Many of them persist until this day. Can I do this and be a Christian? That's not the question. The question is, how far away from that can I live? God calls his people unto holiness. And he gave them a law that described it and defined it so that they would know his character and his nature so that they would know how to live a holy life. And that holiness was to come from within, not just mere outward resistances and or practices, but from the heart they would worship God and love him. From the heart they would resist stealing someone else's property. From the heart they would not covet their neighbor and his goods and his family. The church of Jesus Christ today wallows in the dirt of sinfulness. We don't want we don't want to live holy lives. We don't. It's hard. I examine my life. And there are things I don't want to give up. And you don't either. And yet there are things that inhibit and restrict the growth and maturity and development of holiness in our lives. If you are still with me, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. You may know this passage, but I mentioned a few moments ago that God's plan hasn't changed from the Garden of Eden to today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9, you are an elect race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's right out of Exodus 19. That ye may show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who in time past were no people. In other words, you were Gentiles. <laughs> you were nobody. I suspect that most, if not all of us here tonight, fall into that category. We're Gentiles. <laughs> That's a double grace. But now are the people of God those who once had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The plan of God hasn't changed from the Garden of Eden till today, and it will not change until the consummation. At the consummation, God will draw all things to himself in conclusion. In Christ, upon the throne... 
And who will we see at that gathering? Some from every tongue, tribe, and nation will join in the chorus of giving honor, glory, and praise to the Father and to His Son who sits upon the throne. Where is the Spirit of God identified in your life, your failure to fit in and submit to God's plan and purpose for your life as a child of God? For your life as an unbeliever to repent and believe the gospel? And for this church, this community of believers, where have we failed? What changes does the Spirit of God need to make in your life in order to conform you to his plan and purpose for you and for this community of believers? I pray that the Spirit of God will open your eyes to see, your ears to hear, your mind to understand and your heart to believe and obey and to love the one who loves you. And out of love for him, submit to his righteous rule and reign in your life.